So to bring you all up to speed, we're in this third week of a post-Christmas season called Epiphany, where we celebrate God showing up and showing out in Jesus. And uh, by studying and being aware of this, hopefully it helps us anticipate the very ways that God is still in the business of surprising us, of meeting us, of calling us, and of opening us up and opening us out to the work of the Spirit in this world and in our lives. We've been using these lectionary texts, kind of um, a group of texts that uh, a lot of Christians in a lot of places are studying too, so that's kind of cool um, to, to be connected with others following uh, along. And so last week uh, we were in John's Gospel, this week we're in Mark's. And the, the question that issued forth last week was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We, we thought, you kind of have to say Nazareth like the way Jim Morris says, playoffs? Like, like with such surprise that that could actually be the case. And we see how that, anything good from Nazareth, then slowly transforms in Philip's mind. He undergoes this sort of sea change shift of his imagination as he's brought into a story where angels trod in his midst, where he was previously unaware. He finds out like Jacob before him, his better response in talking like that would be to turn a stone pillow into an altar of praise and recognize that Nazareth or Bethsaida or Lakewood or wherever, is also always a Bethel, a house of God, a place to be met and called, and this is what Epiphany is all about. So then we dive into this text today, and we have a little bit of a different style from John. John is this cosmic writer, the word that became flesh. Mark one thing you realize if you ever sit down and read Mark through in one sitting, and I, w I would recommend that. That's a good practice from time to time. It won't take you that long because Mark's a little shorter than ever, everyone else. And it helps you kind of see the forest for all the trees when you dive into a little passage like this. One thing you realize with Mark is just how electric the good news is. How, like, I, I, would, I would characterize Mark, Mark's telling of the good news as a gospel of immediacy. There's this great urgency. It's shorter, it's punchier, it's in a lot of ways more staccato and dramatic than the other gospel writings. In the original Greek, it's just peppered with all these and, 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 and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, in ways that if you were to write it in Greek class, you'd probably get marked down for it. But Mark can't contain this good news. And then the time when almost everything takes place is immediately, and we see that in our story immediately they dropped their nets and left. Immediately. If I was doing Mark's writing justice this morning, I would probably like talk a little faster. It would almost be like listening to a sermon at one and a half speed, and I know none of you guys do that, right? I, I don't know if I could pull that off, so I'll, I'll, I'll try. So it's with, this <coughs> it's with this immediacy that we jump right in and find Jesus on the move going to Galilee, proclaiming the good news. It's always a good exercise when you read these like Christian words like good news or gospel to, to kind of stop for a second and think, what, what is that? 
I think I know that. But what is that thing, that good news? And, and we see that this good news coming out of Jesus' mouth is that the time is now, the kingdom is near. He says, turn around from going the wrong way and pledge your allegiance to the king. That's the good news. It's not all that touchy-feely, actually. It's, it's a, this proclamation, this, this call. Any resistance movement worth its salt is going to need some followers. So Jesus goes around Galilee trying to find the saltiest disciples he could find. Fishermen, of course. And he has a simple pitch. Always have a simple pitch. Come, follow me. Right? It's hard sometimes to bust through the ways that we've domesticated this radical call to follow. Like... I'm prone to think of it more as some sort of like meek event invitation that you can kind of click interested on until you know what your schedule is like and then maybe say I'm going, you know, or you click interested just to let the person who invited you know that you're, you know, you're for that, but you're probably not going to be involved in that. One pastor puts it this way, though. The gospel is not about choosing to follow advice. It's about being called to follow a king. Where have we forgotten this? Even on a level which requires more from us on an apprenticeship or like on a grad school level, it's a little bit difficult to realize that in Jesus' context, rabbis were the ones that chose their pupils, not the other way around. Like we do our, all of our research and we decide the program that we want to apply to and the person we want to study with and we, we you know give our best self to them on the application and on our CV. This is not how it works. If you want to study with Rabbi Ben Zakai, Rabbi Ben Zakai calls you, right? You see, that's kind of the first epiphany movement here of God and Jesus, that, he, that God works through a calling, through a choosing. Before we respond, we're called, we're chosen. I'm starting to hear what kind of is like a pre-maybe echo to the Apostle Paul's logic of Romans 8.30. We, we get all this dense Paul language and we don't know what to do with it around election and calling and stuff. But th this is what he's saying. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Before you were called, you were chosen. We see this being played out in real time in Jesus' life. So practically, we also talk about calling, invocation. And I know for a young church like Oak Church, this is, this is kind of what's on everyone's minds because we're all kind of in transition mode. We're all trying to learn how to be adults. Even the adults among us are learning how to be adults. And, and then the small, very awesome, very wise older group are learning how to be older adults for the first time ever. And everyone's just doing this for the first time. It's crazy, right? And so when we talk about calling and vocation and that place and that thing that we're supposed to be and that we're supposed to be doing, sometimes I think we hone too tightly on the how and what of that calling. What is my job going to be? How am I going to make enough money to sustain all the other good things that I'm responsible for and called to? I think sometimes that often... It intimidates us and depresses us and it feels like a puzzle that someone else has the lid to or someone's been taking pieces away, you know? If that's where you're at today, I hope there's some room for you to have this strange sort of meeting, this, this little 
epiphany where you realize that before all of those little details, sometimes huge details, work themselves out, you, exactly you, are chosen in and by Jesus, and you're issued the call to come and follow me. Like that's the bedrock, that's the foundation, that's the groundwork on that all that other stuff is going to get built upon, that you are chosen and called to come and follow Jesus. You are called to trust, believe. That's what faith is. The good news that God is doing something both good and new in this world, not just in you, but in this world. The best response you can offer is your attention, your imagination, your desires, your faith, your future, your everything. (laughs) I think this is what it might be like to get hooked into Jesus' life through the call of his voice. Following Jesus' invitation, he says to Andrew and to Simon, I will send you out to fish for people. Do we have any fishers in, in the audience? We're really, we're really pretty inland right here. I, 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 was, I was dog-sitting for my parents who are lifelong Floridians but now live like a half mile from here. And when I was uh, taking the cat's litter out yesterday, I noticed on their bookshelf this like um, handbook for um, piloting small nautical vehicles like on their shelf. And I was like, oh, they'll never, they don't need that, you know? (laughs) So I I hope we don't have like kind of inland 10 years to hear some of this nautical stuff that's happening in here. It says, I will send you out to fish for people to Simon and Andrew. In short, you've been fishermen. Now I will make you fishers of men. Clever Jesus. This is good stuff. And this is kind of the picture we get of that. This is, uh, uh, I believe, Chinese artist Hei Ki doing this. And it's very romantic, this, this cool picture of Jesus calling these guys to set their nets down. <clears throat> this is a fascinating moment that, that normally gets kind of washed over. In our well-meaning evangelistic fervor, we gravitate towards the image of fishers of people. We want to hook people in. Because what we're experiencing is good. Why wouldn't we? It, sound, it also sounds kind of downright leisurely, right? Jeez, it's ready-made for like a Christian fishing tournament logo. Like, I think that's a thing. Oh, yeah, right. But here's the thing. When Jesus conscripts Andrew and Simon and then the Zebedee boys, John and James, into his mission and this new identity... As fishers of humanity, he's tapping them into something much more brutal and strange and severe because now they're joining him in God's work of repentance and judgment, clashing headlong against all the unjust, phony gods and lesser newses running amok. You see, the fish hook pops up periodically in prophetic announcements as a symbol and as a tool of judgment. So purge your mind when you hear fish hook. It's probably something closer to this. Like, this was a move that was early on uh, made illegal in my household. Like, (laughs) various eye gouges and fish hooks. 
This is a deadly move. So when you hear fishhook, think this more than some of those more domesticated images. You can put something else up so we're not distracted. <laughs> so exhibit A is from Jeremiah 16, where Jeremiah, the prophet, says, <coughs> on behalf of the Lord, but I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. Nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin, because they have defiled the land with the lifeless forms of their vile images, and have filled my inheritance with detestable idols. Whew! Right? Or exhibit B from Amos. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come that you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. Heck, exhibit C is the whole book of Jonah, right? We read a small section of that this morning where Jonah is called by God and sent to Nineveh to seek their repentance. Problem is for Jonah, they actually repent, and he doesn't like that because that kind of chafes against his sense of fairness. They're so bad. Why do they get to come back into the Lord's favor? My Old Testament professor, Ellen Davis, reminds us why this was so hard for Jonah to stomach. She says, Tad, Insult to very substantial injury, the Ninevites pro uh, prospered for an excruciatingly long time, three centuries or more. Imagine that, three centuries or more. They fared too well for any savvy Israelite to not wonder about the justice of God. The long-standing dominance of the Assyrian Empire from an Israelite perspective was something that God might well be expected to answer for, and the hapless prophet Jonah is the guy who takes that job upon himself. So we see this back and forth from Jonah and God as to whether he could or would join God's mission as an architect of compassion. And in Jonah, we see that when we're reticent to come and follow or disobedient to the call, sometimes we get swallowed up by the very thing we're hoping to avoid or master. If this call towards judgment and repentance makes you nervous, I can see some people that are like, ooh, those are texts that aren't part of the lectionary, right? It probably should make you nervous. Judgment and repentance of that sort aren't really things that we're responsible for or in the business of generating on our own, but only joining in on. It's too, too much, it's too heavy for us to do. Because we've been the unjust ones, too. And we've turned towards Christ in this call. So then we can join him in justice-making. Because we've been stiff-necked, unrepentant ones in exile, we might be restored, and then we might call others into that restoration. Because we've resisted and eventually given into grace and like, I'm talking grace like Jacob wrestling an angel grace. I'm talking grace like how Flannery O'Connor talks about grace, that she says all human nature resists, vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change hurts. We don't like grace until it changes and then we love it and we need it. 
that grace is all the more real and powerful because we've resisted it previously and we've needed it badly. And then that grace becomes all the more transformative when it works through our lives and comes across our lips. So then where Jesus is put right people, we of all people, and we join Jesus in the putting the world to rights. I think this is why Jesus seems only to use a specific call and a specific line for these fishermen. Uh, I was struggling with this, trying to find another instance. He says, you've been fishermen, I will make you fishers of men. That's kind of what I call the Jay-Z line, where he says, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman, you know? Uh, Jesus, yes. But he doesn't do this with his other disciples, right? You don't hear him saying outright to Matthew, the tax collector, you've been a tax collector, now you're going to be a tithe collector, <laughs> right? Or something like that. I think the fisherman thing was something special, something tapping into Israel's story, Jesus' prophetic identity, and just how the coming kingdom was going to be geared towards confrontation with the principalities and the powers which manifest themselves in idolatry and greed and injustice in this world. So I don't want to just make like some overarching principle about this and send you out here trying to figure out what your analogous vocation is. In some ways, I think that's also a little demeaning to the work that you're already doing and the ways that you're already joining in what God's doing in important ways that are bringing about hope and healing and hospitality in this world. What you're doing might already be doing that. I will say, though, something, a couple of details about the fishermen are, are kind of interesting to me. That the fishermen that Jesus encountered were common, but they were important. I, I don't know exactly that they were all that respected in their, in their society or culture, but I think their existence, while not romantic, was pretty vital. These, these were the blue-collar workers who put the food on the tables of the surrounding Galilee Bay. But this identity in the hands of Jesus, responding to the call of Jesus, gets radically transfigured. And maybe that's a new word for you. Here's what I mean by that. So often, because we try to take so seriously the gravity and the importance of this all-encompassing call to come and follow Jesus, which asks us to leave our loves and our nets, we think that our response to that call must radically transform, change the form of our life. And maybe it does. But I have news for you, like the fishermen, like the table we're going to gather around here in a couple minutes, so much of the Christian life is instead about transfiguration, transfiguration where something can both be radically new and different, but also radically the same. So if you don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, you might not have known something was different or changed. I think a good transfiguration happens also when you know your story when you know your ingredients. Jeremiah, not the prophet that we just read, but my friend Jeremiah, who steers our 
who chairs our steering group, has been leading the steering group through some exercises together to better understand the movements of God in our lives. And we do this through reflection and sharing with others and community. It's easier to see like emerging themes that, and come to kind of small or maybe even not so small epiphanies about the way the Lord has worked and is working and calling us in our lives. I told my story this fall. There's a picture of, of the, the mapping that we're supposed to do. Uh, I, you can't read my chicken scratch, so I'm not worried. Um, <clears throat> but I couldn't help but see, upon presenting to others, the ways that very specific assets and gifts, weaknesses and like traumas, experiences and joys and hurts, all kind of combined to form this strange calling cocktail that I'm currently in and this trajectory that I'm on. At each turn, I couldn't have conceived of this call to be a pastor. I don't stand in front of you of someone who even knew what that meant or would look like, let alone a church planner. Even I was unaware that I was being prepared for these things or that these small things that God put in me would, would grow and some of them would die and some of that would hurt and some of that would be so fun, and some of that would be a whole season of not fun at all. <laughs> and, and that with all those things, I'd be given just the right amount of grace to get me to the place where I could say yes to God the next time the question was posed to me, that I could come and follow. I couldn't have imagined what it'd be like in the day in and day out, the joys and the daily self dying it takes to be a husband or a father to one and then two and then three and now four kids, right? Or that there'd be enough space and enough time and enough bandwidth and enough sleep and there's not enough sleep. But I can, when you map this out, you can start to trace the ways back, the former versions of myself that was being prepared and disciplined and taught and carried in some, in some moments, and then transfigured into doing this good work and into um, embodying these new identities. This transfiguration happens when Jesus takes something normal, and I stand in front of you as someone who thinks I'm at the very best normal, <laughs> um, takes something normal and blesses it. And in so doing, prepares it to bless others. Henry Nouwen says, claiming your own blessedness always leads to a deep desire to bless others. That's Israel's story. That's the whole trajectory is to be blessed in order to bless many, the nations, ta'ethne, everyone. Jesus takes and Jesus blesses. And there's so much dignity that Jesus might deign to bless what you already have going on and what, what God has already made in you and what in some ways you've tangled and twisted and mangled, that Jesus would bless that and start to unwind it, start to open it. And then he breaks it. <laughs> That's how this works. Take, bless, and then break. And this is the part that we fear and that we dread so deeply. But this is also the part that makes it possible for us to join in God's work. Before this step feels freeing, it feels terrifying. And it doesn't just happen once. This is like continuous stuff. 
This is the whole living sacrifice portion of the program. But the good news is that when you break down the word sacrifice, you get to make holy. Like, sacra is holy, fase is to do or perform, to make holy. The breaking is the making holy. And then finally, Jesus gives. He gives our lives and our callings and our identities, not only back to us, but to distribute to the world. This is like the feeding of the 5,000. They took something small, blessed it, broke it, distributed it, and then collected baskets upon baskets and said, what in the world just happened? And I think this is what happens in our lives too. This is the Eucharistic shape of our calling. This is the way transformation, that radically same hook works. So we might ask, what is the important but not all that special identity that I think is separate or beyond or below God taking, blessing, breaking, and giving back to you for the sake of the world? Maybe that's a better question than how am I a nurse for Jesus or a student for God? That God might radically transform and transfigure who you are and call you into his work. What nets might you need to leave today in order to take up that work? Because so often we just have our hands full. We have our hands full of stuff that, that we need to offer over so it can be given back to us much lighter and much more manageable for the work and the life of Jesus, for the blessing and justice of this world. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite Jeremiah to come up and lead us in our time of reflection and conversation and confession. So will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these words, your word and, and the ways that it works and cuts and heals and seeps into corners and crevices and places that we um, guard and section off or that we don't know that are there. Lord, use your spirit make this word come alive in our lives that we might heed your call to come and follow. We might have courage to uh, offer our lives and our loves and our futures to you that you might take them and bless them and break them and give them to us for others. We thank you that we might join in your call for justice and peacemaking even as we've been unjust and um, peace breakers. Uh, we thank you for Jesus around whom this all centers and for your spirit that brings us into Jesus' life. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.